In the middle of a valley between two armies stood a giant. And he was boisterous and he was obnoxious. He went on and on and on, screaming from one end of morning to the other end of the evening. Behind him was the Philistine army. Ahead of him was the army of the Israelites. And he would curse and swear. He would pump his chest and make sure his ironclad armor was heard. And he would raise his weapons and he would hoot and he would holler. And he'd say, I challenge you to come against me. I defy your God. You can't defeat me. And day after day, the Israelites were cowering before this boisterous, noisy giant in the center of the valley, while the Philistines behind him were lifting their chests a little higher in courage. But then what nobody expected happened. A shepherd boy who was about the height you would expect of a shepherd boy and about the muscular frame you would expect from a meager shepherd boy comes walking on into the valley. Israel can't believe it. The Philistines can't believe it. And the giant can't believe it. In fact, he has a good time with this. (laughs) He says, you send me this lad. He's not the age of a soldier. He does not have the clothing of a soldier he doesn't even walk like a soldier i doubt he even thinks like a soldier and what's that a man bag around your shoulder and a stick what did you think you're coming here to do play fetch with a dog and so goliath continues to boast and boast and david patiently waits for his turn and then says all right well i'll show you what god can do And then he lets a simple, swift action do the rest of the talking. Puts a stone in the sling and flies it. And it hits the giant in the head. He falls down. And in that moment, a seismic shift happens. Fear and courage switch sides. And the Israelite army now charges, careful not to trip over the giant, as they pursue the Philistines who are fleeing. A seismic shift That did not come from seismic effort. Do you see that? It's the Philistine, the giant in the valley, who's booming his voice, who's trying to bring shock value, who's trying to make an impression. Look at me. You're all weak. I'm strong. I dare you to come challenge me. But it was the unassuming shepherd boy who had not much going for him by means of warfare who out of a simple action brings an incredible shift. We have this cancer, just as humans, called crowd craving. And unfortunately, it's spread into the church. Rather than taking the path of David into the valley, we've chosen to focus our eyes on the Goliaths and not to see that as the enemy but to see that as the strategy for attention. We have sought to elbow our way into what some have called the noisy center of culture. And there we're trying to clamor with the giants. We're trying to out shout, out hoot, out holler and say, no, 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 no. We've got the truth, not them. Look at us. Notice us. Notice us. But if you think about what a, cert, what a seismic shift actually is, In geology, it's something that happens in the spaces and the cracks of the earth. And it's the same thing with people. As we're going to see, God chooses to work not in the noisy center. Oh, he'll get his work there. But he doesn't start in the noisy center. God starts in the neglected margins, the peripheral, the so-called space and cracks of society where you don't expect much power, much Im- nothing impressive coming from there. God works in those places to send his shockwaves throughout the world. But we have suffered with this cancer of crowd craving. 
Is it not true? We think that only the churches that are growing in numbers are the ones that are doing something right or the ones that are healthy. We are drawn to numbers, to people. If we have more followers, more of America, more politicians, more, 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 more people naming the name of Christ, then we're winning. Okay, that could be a result of serving God is that he will bring growth. But if growth is our goal, if that's what we're aiming for, we will make shortcuts and we will exchange the things that God's called us to do in order to gain acceptance, in order to gain popularity, in order to gain the notice of people. And I, I've listened to a lot of different teachers. I've read a lot of different books in the Christian circles. And this is a cancer. Now, I'm using the word cancer because cancer is also a growth. And what we need to realize is that not all growths in all bodies are healthy. And so we need to be aware, how are we getting growth? Why are we getting growth? What are we after? And so we're about to look at the servant again. And the servant is someone, if you think about this, is someone who shoots the spotlight onto its master. That's what servants do. They try to bring attention and glory to their master. But when the church is clamoring to get noticed, it's trying to be relevant, it's trying to be popular, it's trying to get more people, it is far from being a servant. It becomes the giant in the valley, and it turns that spotlight on itself and says, look at us. We've got a good way of living too. We've got a good message. We've got the true self-help. We've got, and we're just trying to compete. We need to consider carefully how we're doing that. So... The servant comes to our aid here in Isaiah chapter 42. The servant, surprise, is not in the noisy center of things. The servant is on the margins where the seismic shifts start. So we are in Isaiah 42. You might notice um, we were in Isaiah 49 last week, right? And you're going, either I am older than I thought or Brandon is older than we thought. <laughs> no, we're where we should be. So here's what's going on. Remember, Isaiah's like a symphony. It's dynamic. It's impactful. It's got swells of glory and valleys of terror. And it has three movements, like a lot of concertos in the symphonies would have. And the first one is boisterous and it's thunderous. And Isaiah saying, whoa, Israel, if you don't learn to trust Yahweh, if you get off of this whole, ooh, Egypt will save us. Ooh, the Assyrians. Ooh, the Babylonians. If you stop glorifying the nations, if you don't stop glorifying the nations around you, you're going to fall. That's how the first movement ends in chapter 39. Chapter 40, we come to the second movement. And it seems that Isaiah is foreseeing what he knows is going to happen. They're not going to trust Yahweh. They're going to fall. They're going to be in exile. They're going to lose their city, their country, their temple, and they're going to be scattered around the world. I need to write to them encouragement. Trust in God now. He will bring us back if we return to him. So the second movement, chapters 40 through 55, he becomes not the thundering prophet, but the comforting poet. So you may remember chapter 40 opens with comfort Comfort my people, says your God. So he begins with words of comfort. Then he invites us on this path, 40 verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. To help us on this path, he's promised us wings. Isaiah 40 verse 31. But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Don't give up. When you get tired, this when you give up. And you start looking for cheap versions of Christianity. God's saying, don't give up. I will give you the wings you need if you will keep waiting on me. And you'll stay on the path. I will get you through. But we take shortcuts. So we turn to things like idolatry. And we have seen that several times but in chapter 46 is sort of like the 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 big one um in chapter 46 verse 7 it says that they 
idolaters lift their idol to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there and it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. That's Isaiah 46, 7. They have to lift the idol to their shoulders. They have to set it down. They have to cry to it and they have to make it talk back. You remember the Smurf I sat with? It's a great example, very silly, but great example of how little idols can do for us. You got to carry it around. And so we get weary. We start to give up because we're carrying more than God wants us to carry. And so he's asking us to lay those things down. And that brings us to the servant. The servant is the figure that Isaiah is telling us about because the servant is the one who makes it through the path. The servant's the one who grows wings and can soar. The servant is the one who's putting down the idolatries, especially the idol of self and saying, okay, I'm not going to make life about my personal happiness project. I'm not going to bend everything toward my will. I'm not going to make God my personal assistant. I'm flipping all of this around, and I'm going to make myself God's personal assistant. I'm going to make my happiness whatever makes him happy, and I'm going to devote my life and my purpose and my calling and my talents and my time and my energy toward that which serves the kingdom of God. That is what it means to be a Christian. Anything else is idolatry. Anything we call the good life or anything that we are making the center of our happiness and our existence that is not contributing to the kingdom of God is an idol burdening us as we're trying to move down this path through the wilderness. So the servant comes as our example who we are meant to emulate. Okay, now. Most of us know this already, but the servant is really Jesus. Isaiah doesn't know his name yet, but Jesus will fulfill everything the servant is said, that everything Isaiah says the servant will do, Jesus does. And the New Testament is crystal clear on this. So we have an example in Jesus of how to be a servant. Okay, now, you know our context and why we're looking at the servant. You don't know why we're out of order in the chapters. Um, frankly, that was just because last week's passage in 49, the servant, it came right after. You might remember the message on the idol of self. Um, that was two weeks ago. The idol of self was chapter, it ended at chapter 48. So I went straight into chapter 49 saying, see, look, the next chapter is the servant. This is the cure to your selfishness. Be a servant. So we started with that one. Now we're going to chapter 42. And this is actually the first passage that mentions the servant. Okay, you get it? So we just kind of went out of order a little bit because it was convenient. So there are going to be four of these chapters about the servant. We're looking at the first one, chapter 42. We've already studied the second one, chapter 49. Then in the upcoming weeks, we're going to do chapter 50 and then chapter 53. And chapter 53 is the one that very clearly says the servant is going to suffer for the sins of the world. So that's where we're going. All right, so let's look at chapter 42. By the way, as you turn to 42, um, many scholars believe that these are songs. They're at least poems, but they might be songs that were sung. So they're known in a lot of books as the servant songs. So here, here's the first one. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So the servant's going to come and bring justice to the nations. Then we see in verses 2, 3, and 4 the way he's going to do that. We're going to come back to that. And of course, in verse 1, he saw God is pleased with this servant. Now, verse 5, we continue. Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. This is what he says. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness and I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you 
Servants are given. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And you might remember last week, that's what we emphasized in chapter 49, was how the servant would not just reunify the nation of Israel, but would then also become a light for the Gentiles, for the nations. So it's reiterated here. Um, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Verse 7. See if this doesn't sound like Jesus. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out from the prisons, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Seismic shifts start in the spaces and the cracks. They're in the peripheral. They're in the margins. It's not in the noisy center. Movements and change through history have never come from the noisy popular center where people are trying to get attention. Movements and change in history has always come from the marginalized, from people who are underestimated. They're the outliers So how should the servant come? The servant should not have the cancer of crowd craving. Amen. The servant servant should be one who serves in the margins. The servant lives there. I'm not doing it. So look what we see about this servant in Isaiah chapter 42. We see that he is doing everything he can not to be in the center, at least not the noisy center. He's doing what he can to live in the margins, to go to the spaces and the cracks of society, to let seismic shifts open up there. So notice what the servant does in verse two. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Or look at this another way. Those verses, two through four, that is what it looks like to have a crowd craving. If you have a crowd craving, you think the crowd makes you important. You think that numbers are what matter then you're going to do the opposite of what the servant's doing. A crowd craver, well, in verse two, he will cry aloud and lift up his voice and say, look at me, hear me, notice, 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 a bombardment of messages, an elbowing for space in the noisy center. Uh, Well, if the world is this loud, I'm going to ratchet up to volume 11. But that's not what the servant's doing. Crowd cravers, crowd cravers need attention. They need the crowd. Ugh. The movement's so small. Why am I wasting my time? That's not a servant. That's someone who thinks that they're important because of a crowd. A crowd craver, verse 3, will think that they look strong because of how they handle the weak. The servant will not bruise a reed, or not break a bruised reed. But what will a crowd craver do? Oh, we have a bunch of bruised reeds here. Let's make sure we clear them out and put images of successful people so that we draw like people. We want to be recognized not as a bunch of losers, but as popular, as important folk. Folk who are educated, folk who vote well, folk who know their history, folk who know what's up with the times. But the servant doesn't look at bruised reeds. By the way, if that's a weird phrase, think of the reeds, the the plants that grow up around marshes. They're not very strong, sturdy things. You can bend them and you can snap them. And if it's bruised, it's it's limping. It's not even holding itself up and swaying in the wind anymore. It's just, it looks sad, like a bear lay down on it and it didn't ever get back up. And we're like, get rid of that. Or maybe in our context, think about weeds. Get rid of those. They're ugly. And yet crowd cravers want to get rid of whatever's ugly. See, we're, we're, we're turning people, we're, we're missing the vision of people and we're focusing on 
We need a program that's successful, something that's efficient, something that gets the job done, something that wins, something that you can measure. But a servant was looking at the, a servant's looking at the people, even if they're bruised reeds, he's not going to break them and say, see, I'm strong. He's going to say, okay, I'll become a bruised reed too, so that we can move forward together. Um, a faintly burning wick, you know, that candle you blew out, but it hasn't stopped smoking or maybe because it's at the end of its wick and it's just kind of puttering there and smoking. You're like, eh, get rid of that. Quench it. Not this servant. He's going to do what he can to fan it back into flames. So a crowd craver wants attention. A crowd craver wants to prove he's with the strong, not with the weak. A crowd craver in verse 4 is always yearning for something more, something better, or the way we like to say it, greener grass. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has essentially finished his mission, established justice in the earth. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Yet, when I become a crowd craver, it is so easy to get discouraged. It is so easy to give up. It is so easy to say, well, throw in the towel, wherever you're serving, whatever you're doing, throw in the towel because they've got it together. Or this philosophy's more successful or it's so easy to just yearn for whatever you don't have isn't it but the servant recognizes that he doesn't choose his task his chat his task is given to him and so where he is is where he says be faithful he doesn't give up he doesn't get discouraged he says all right yeah it's bleak it's hard it's not what i think it should be um i feel like a little shepherd boy and everyone else around me is a giant but he doesn't give up he says all right i'm serving my lord but the crowd craver cannot tolerate that. They'll give a year or two to this or that. Then they'll be like, yeah, it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't what you wanted. So here we see the servant and his mission. And this shouldn't surprise you. Here we see Jesus specifically. So please turn to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. Okay, so Matthew 12, verse 15. You're going to see this very passage we just studied. Matthew 12, 15. Jesus, aware of this, he had just healed a man with a withered hand, and the religious leaders were very upset about this. Um, it says, aware of this, withdrew from there. He withdrew. He went into hiding. He didn't say, oh, yeah, you, you're asking for the guy that healed the man with the withered hand. That's me. What else can I do? Do you have withered hands? Do you have lame? Do you have sick? Bring them right now. Everyone notice what's about to happen. Got the synagogue here anyway. So bring them all out. It says that he withdraws. Now, you could say, well, that's because they wanted to kill him. Of course, he's in hiding. That would be too reductionistic because of what you're about to see. Jesus is not just trying to save his life right now. He's hiding because he does not want too much attention. I know it sounds strange, but watch what he's about to say. So he withdrew from there, and many followed him. He didn't get away from them. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. So rather than saying, okay, yeah, go ahead. Like, tell everyone if they have needs just to come to me. Rather, he's, he's healing you. He's like, shh, it's our little secret. Yet people are still coming out to him. Interesting, isn't it? His, he's effective, yet he's not even trying to get attention. So why is all this going on? Well, Matthew tells us in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. By the way, we're reading Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4 here. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. 
Now, it reads a little a slightly different at parts because Matthew is quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament. We are reading a translation of the Hebrew. And so just like us in our days with translations that read slightly different with the same message, they had the same thing in those days. So that's, that's why you hear it. It sounds similar, but there's certain parts that are a little different. That's why. Matthew's quoting our passage to say, Jesus went about his ministry in such a way that he did not move into the spotlight, but he continually retreated from it. He didn't encourage everyone to go broadcast his name to make him more noticed and popular. Far from it, he told them, just keep this down. I'm trying to do a work here that can't get too big too fast. Why? The reader questions, why Jesus? Why didn't you fill up the arenas and the stadiums? Why didn't you go first thing to the busy, noisy center of Jerusalem and stand on Main Street and prove that you're God? Why Jesus? Matthew tells us, because he was a servant who believed that seismic shifts were more powerful when coming from the spaces and the cracks, the margins of society moving inward rather than going straight onto the center. Because if you go straight into the center, you have to be loud, you have to be noisy, you have to be obnoxious. And the quiet ways of the gospel are overlooked. But if you can grow momentum from without that, then it will slowly creep in until the noisy center is no longer the majority. This is what Jesus is doing. He's bringing seismic shifts. He's working in the spaces, in the cracks, in the margins, in the overlooked areas. It's why he's born of a virgin. Have you ever considered how challenging that would be? Because it's not like as soon as you explain it, so Jesus, who's your dad? No, no, it's not like that. I was born of a, it was a miraculous virgin birth. Oh, oh, I'm glad you clarified that. (laughs) Now I get, no, no. Imagine how kindergarten was. Or lining up for the dodgeball team and being picked last every time. Oh, the freak whose mom claims that he's from God. We know how that works, Jesus. See, how it works when you don't have a dad, but your mom gets pregnant is, and Jesus had to go up up with that all his life. And then we're not speculating. In John, I think it's chapter 8 or 9, off the top of my head, um, the Pharisees actually say, well, at least we know who our dad is. They say that to Jesus. This was something he lived with. This is something that would ostracize you. It would make you move into the margins. This was God's will? Yeah, Jesus starts at a disadvantage. Someone, someone, um, I was talking to somebody, I think it was last Sunday, and they, they named the virgin birth, and then they named some other things, and they're like, it's almost like God was intentionally making it hard to believe in him. And it's strange. It's strange that God doesn't put himself in the noisy center and just say, case solved. He wanted to do something different than the world. He wanted to work in a way that the world doesn't work. So that's Matthew. We see that relating to Jesus. Go to 1 Corinthians. To your right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So I mentioned the virgin birth. Um, Jesus goes through his life and then he's crucified. And now that's become so such a phrase for us that we sometimes forget how radical it is to say that Jesus was crucified. Like, yeah, he was crucified on the cross. That's just how it was. That wasn't the only way people were killed back then. In fact, this was the worst way you were killed back then. I know, wasn't great? God like chose the most suffering route for us. Yes, but it was also the most humiliating route. Not anybody was crucified. It was so horrible that even the Romans understood the horror of it and they reserved crucifixion only for the most special of cases. A, those whom the state considered terrorists against their king, Caesar, they were crucified. And B, those who did not have Roman citizenship. Basically, you had to be a slave to be crucified. And um, if you were the servant, uh, if you were the master of a slave, you could, just because you didn't like them anymore, they disobeyed you, you could order them to be crucified. It became known as the execution for the lowest people of society. No one above that bottom of the barrel would be crucified. They'd be beheaded. 
which is why the Apostle Paul is beheaded. Jesus is crucified. It's a humiliation. It's saying he is considered in the eyes of the world the absolute worst. Now, can you imagine the early church going to a society who's seen crucifixion, who knows what it means, and telling them, hey, follow our God. He proved his love to us by being crucified. Now, all the people in downtown, the noisy center, the important people who've got good careers and a lot of money, <laughs> the glasses of the sophisticated is what he's doing. Uh, they're all like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you lot follow that kind of person, we'll distance ourselves. Seriously, it's almost like God made it hard. So here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. You see now, right? Why preaching the cross would have been, you're shooting yourself in the leg, basically. You're hindering your movement. You can't grow, he's saying. Growth, this is a horrible growth strategy, preaching the cross. That's what he goes on to say a little bit more. He's like, look, I abstain from the popular phrases and the popular ways to speak and what would draw a bigger crowd. I abstain from that stuff, Paul said, and decided. I determined to know nothing and preach nothing to you except Christ and him crucified. I was going against the grain. I was giving the worst possible messages I could because that's where God is hiding in the spaces, the cracks, the margins. He's a servant who's not in the noisy center the cross and then and then to show us what kind of people follow the cross first corinthians 127 but god 127 but god chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise god chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong god chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Wow. Let's, let, me, let me read this again, showing you the difference. But God chose what is foolish, the margins, to shame the wise, the noisy center. God chose what is weak in the world, the margins, to shame the strong, the noisy center. God chose what is low and despised in the world, the margins, even things that are not the margins, to bring to nothing things that are the noisy center, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Or as Isaiah 42, our last verse said, I will not give my glory to another. Friends, God chose David the foolish, the despised, the one who had no chance, the underdog, instead of mighty King Saul or a heroic warrior in Israel. No, he chose David. He didn't, show, he didn't choose Israel's version of Goliath. He chose the opposite to shame what the world thought was impressive, what the Philistines were confident in, what Israel was afraid of. God chose the low, the foolish, the despised, the weak. The seismic shift happened because a servant came out of the margins. And Jesus mimicked the same approach. And this is the challenge. A servant lives and serves in the margins. A servant doesn't have the cancer of crowd craving. And I wonder how we are doing individually. I wonder how the church at large is doing. Because I don't get the sense when I look around America that everyone is on board with the whole servant mission. But here's, here's how we do this, okay? I know this is hard, but if we go back to Isaiah 42, I think our key here is right at the beginning of the chapter. He said, 42 verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul 
delights. It's so easy to read right over that. But God is saying, this servant is when I chose, I uphold, and in whom my soul delights. I take joy. I find pleasure. I am proud of. That's what it means to delight in my servant. The world might despise this person, but I look at him and say, there is a human made in my image. There is someone I find joy in, that I am pleased with, that I am proud of. What we learn is that we crave the crowd because we have not learned to desire God's delight in us. We crave the crowd because we don't understand the adulation, the value, the pleasure that the God of the universe places in us. And when I'm not getting that from him, I'm feeling empty and insignificant. So I've got to move through the universe thinking, how can I get popular? How can I feel like a somebody? I feel like a nobody. I want to become great. So where do we go? We go to the noisy center where everyone else is clamoring to be great. And we think that's where it is. But the servant recognizes that they were already great before anybody in the world noticed them. Because they recognize God delighted in them. And friends, if we doubt the love that God has for us, and if we fail to recognize that he actually wants you and loves being with you and is proud of you as you are, that you've already earned his favor. I shouldn't even say earned. You already have it. You don't, it's not like you did something to get it and you're going to lose it or, or I need to do more to get more. He's already, because you are his, he's already poured so much of himself and his love and his adoration into you. But if we don't trust that, if we don't believe that, if we don't see that, we are going to immediately say, well, where else can I get attention? And it's the noisy center where you will get it. But you're not going to be shining the spotlight on God there. You're going to be shining the spotlight on yourself. Because we have, we're insecure beings. Now, the way we get this delight, the way we understand what's happening with us, it continues in verse 1 when it says, I have put my spirit upon him. The presence of God's spirit in our lives is what confirms his love to us. It's what gives us satisfaction. It's what fulfills us so that we don't find ourselves crowd craving. We don't find ourselves competing in the noisy center. We don't find ourselves trying to buy the things Goliath wears and walk the way Goliath walks and talk the way Goliath talks. We're confident to be who God has called us to be because the Holy Spirit in us keeps on confirming and saying, yes, I know it sounds crazy. I know nobody else is going that way, but keep going. The way through the wilderness, yeah, it feels like you're going against the flow. But if you're on the 91 freeway, that's a good thing. (laughs) Just think of it that way. Why are we clamoring where everybody else is? God's calling the church to be an alternate way to show the world, look, there's a better way to move. You don't have to be congested and, and burdened with your idols and everything you're trying to clamor for. It's not a race. It's not a competition. It's about walking the path, growing your wings, and finding the end goal, which we'll get to in chapter 55. You can read ahead and see. That's a great feast waiting. The creation is going to celebrate when Christ comes. Chapter 55 is our destination. That's what we're trying to get to. But but the Holy Spirit in us will keep confirming, yes, keep going, my son. Keep going, my daughter. You are so cherished. You are so loved. God is so proud of you, and he enjoys your company. Don't look for it from those people, things, organizations, ideas. Forget what they want. They're all going to be, remember chapter 40 a while ago? It said, the grass grows and it withers. They're all going to be like that. And Isaiah was talking about Babylon. Babylon, the mighty Babylon, the kingdom of kingdoms. Anyone who was cool back in Isaiah's day was playing games like the Babylonians. They're dressing like Babylonians. They ate like Babylonians, right? Babylon was the standard. And Isaiah's like, grass, summer grass. It's here for a couple months and then it withers. Now, um, 
God delighting my servant, whom I hold, who I've chosen, my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. Those twin images of delight and spirit, you see that happen in Matthew chapter 3. You already know this. And once you see it, you're like, of course. That's why it sounded familiar. So um, I should have told you to keep a finger in Matthew, but nonetheless, Matthew chapter 3. And you'll know this passage. Matthew 3. So how did Jesus stay out of the noisy center? How did Jesus take on the mission of the servant, even though it was folly, it was foolishness? How did he do it? He understood God's delight, and he had the Spirit. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Matthew 3, 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee... By the way, another thing, Galilee was one of the worst regions in the Roman Empire. Nobody wanted to be over there. It was Hillbillyville. It's beautiful, but Hicks lived in Galilee. No, no offense if anyone's a Hick. But honestly, though, we live in the mountains. We are what I call lumberjack Hicks, basically. We're just a gruffer version of them. We are. We're in the margins. <laughs> um. Anyway, so Jesus came from Galilee. I hope I'm not offending anyone by saying that. I mean, we all live together, so we know it. We just, it just, yes, you're one of them too. You didn't know that though. Uh, okay, so Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, the Jordan River, to John. Remember John the Baptist, the one who Isaiah said is going to prepare a way for Jesus and for us to be baptized by him. Now, 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John, all right, you win. So in verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, my servant and my spirit is upon him, right? Then in verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, so the coming of the spirit comes a voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Behold, my servant in whom my soul delights. It does not seem. Let me rephrase that. It'll be confusing. It does seem that Matthew has the servant passage in Isaiah in the back of his mind. As he's piecing together what he saw in the life of Jesus, he's like, wait, that baptism moment, that was when he recognized the pleasure of God in his life. That was when he was filled with the Spirit. So he writes it down that way, borrowing and echoing the words of Isaiah so that we see it. And we're like, oh, I get it. Jesus was called early on to be God's servant. And he knew, he knew whose he was. He wasn't always worried about who I am and elbowing his way to the top of the identity ladder. He knew whose he was. And that he has pleasure in God. God is delighted in him. And so, look what happens next. Chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. <laughs> the margins, right? You would think, ooh, he comes out of the waters all glorious. Oh, this is the one who's going to save the world. And then he's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. Who's with me? And they got banners flying and trumpets blowing. And he's like... Bring it on, Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, he's just converting everyone in the streets. Like thousands are falling down and being healed. And, you know, oh, this whole show is going on. I mean, let's be honest. You've always wondered why he didn't do that, right? Because that's how we write scripts. That's our idea of a seismic shift. But instead, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, in this temptation process, Jesus goes through the same temptations we do. Oh, yes, you're a great one. If you truly are the son of God, the devil says. Um, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. You want to make way in the noisy center? Turn everyone's worthless stuff into bread. That'll do it. Oh, and then he took Jesus to the noisy center, Jerusalem, put him on the highest pinnacle of the temple and said, why don't you just jump down and ask God to save you? What do you think will happen when you land softly on the ground before everyone and take a bow 
oh, they'll be impressed. And Jesus says, nope, not doing that either. And then the third one, you really want to make impact? Claim all the kingdoms of the world as yours. Oh, you'll have the whole world following you in a minute. You just got to worship me. Which then gives this hauntingly spooky suggestion that maybe doing things the world's way, living in the noisy center and trying to outcompete it, is actually worshiping the devil. Because that's the way the devil does it. Just an imp- maybe an implication. And Jesus says, no. No, we worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. And then he's left alone. And then he goes about his quiet ministry. It strikes me as incredible how patient God is and how patient Jesus is. You know, God isn't like in a hurry about getting everyone to believe in him. Like he's going to peel open the heavens and poke his head like, ha, told you atheists right when they're in the middle of a convention and the keynote speaker's like, God is still dead. And then God's like, boo. Ah, Like we would love that, but that's not how he does it. Our desire for relevance, trying to be relevant, there's a difference between being relevant and trying to be relevant. I mean, trying to be relevant is trying to play the same game everybody's playing. Same rules, same cool. Trying to be relevant is crowd craving. It's not understanding the pleasure God has in us. It's not letting the spirit lead us. It's not letting the seismic shifts come from the spaces and the cracks, the margins of society. Relevance... Relevance is a betrayal of patience. Relevance says, oh, yeah, I know God has a way and he has a path, but come on, it's not happening fast enough. So you leave that path and say, we're going to do it like the cool kids do it, and we're going to be like the cool kids. Now we're seeing success because you're like the cool kids. Okay, that's relevance. But God is into patience, and patience is not in a hurry for success. Patience is not saying, oh, my goodness, our numbers aren't growing fast enough. Our profits aren't growing fast enough. Nothing's fast enough. Patience says, I understand that God is a path, and he's declared this path, and he's called me on this path, and he's equipped us for this path, and he's given us the church and the saints and pastors and, and Christianity and the, t- and the Bible and prayer and worship. He's given us all of these things to help us on the path, and then we're to be patient And praise God, for 2,000 years, the church is still going because there's always at least been a remnant that says no to relevance and yes to patience. And it's always been God's plan. You know what? Yeah, I know I'm not always going to be the popular one. (laughs) God's not really worried about it. He's not like, okay, Gabriel, I need more social accounts. I need more likes on Facebook. So, you know, more pictures of babies and cats. We don't see him behaving that way. God is God. And let the ones with eyes see, see. And so he sends his servants to one by one. That's what patience looks like. It's about learning how to worship God and getting rid of the idols in our own lives. And then it looks like dinner or fellowship with a friend, one-on-one. It looks like getting your act together so that you can take at least one person on the way through the wilderness. Now, we like to think relevance is where it's at, so we get a really, we just got to get a bunch of people and keep getting more and grabbing and grabbing. But what good is that if we're loaded with idols and they're professing Jesus, but they're loaded with idols and we're all weighed down and we're not actually any different than the noisy center. We just add Jesus to it. How is this changing anything? But when you get a remnant, when you get a few who desire to serve in the spaces and the cracks, to be in the margins, and they get their act together, they lay down their idols, and they actually worship God, and they give him glory, and one person at a time, they're bringing to the kingdom and letting him be conformed to the image of God, and actually discipling people and taking that seriously, actually walking the way, you do that one person at a time. You have something that continues for 2,000 years and beyond. And no philosophy, no atheism, no government can shut that down. I mean, the relevance comes and goes. How many versions? Many of you have seen way more churches than I have, been through way more seasons of the Christian whatever's in right now. Like You've probably seen them all come and go. 
But what has remained? Following scripture, prayer, laying down our idols, confession. Lord, I've yearned for the crowd. I've yearned for idolatry. I've put myself in the center. Keep teaching me not to do that over and over. We keep going through these cycles and God is moving us forward. He's giving us wings. That's patience. That's patience. So understanding that God delights in us as we are. Um, how much more relevant does it get? You can't beat that kind of relevance. That God delights in us. That's what everybody wants. They're looking for someone to delight in them. You already have it. So why are we fighting, clamoring, competing in the noisy center to get it? You are relevant in God's eyes. And that's what matters. That's the standard for relevance. So we're going to now go to communion. And it's that reminder of Jesus that this is the path. You know, it's like, oh, another week of communion, what? (laughs) Yeah, but we keep believing as we keep taking it, we're being transformed gradually, little by little. Remember the Israelites as they're doing their path to the wilderness after Egypt? God said, look, promised land's coming, but I can't give it to you all at once. It'll be too much for you. You've got to grow into it. So he says, little by little, you will grow into the land. And that's what he's wanting to do with the church. I know I've, I've talked, I've shared before with you guys how the early church was incredibly patient and that they really literally took on a one person at a time evangelistic style. Um, and they, they were really successful for the first 300 years. But then Constantine becomes a Christian, the emperor. And then he declares, Christianity is now cool. <laughs> literally says that like basically christianity is cool i'm a christian you should be a christian like all the all the aristocrats became christians basically and the church was flooded with all these new people coming in and ever since then it's almost like the church has never recovered from trying to get the masses in yes we care about the masses but we can't reach the masses by aiming for the masses we reach for people by being servants to people And if we aim for the masses, we'll depend upon programs, which will then depersonalize the very people we're trying to reach. They're not numbers. We're not an organization. We're not going for profit. We are in the business of relationships and love. And that's what the servant does. Lord, we ask that you would indeed call us to deny ourselves, to give ourselves up, to find the true life you've given us.